Hello, and welcome to Between Every Two Pines. We're here at the West Florida Research and Education Center of the University of Florida in Milton, Florida, and uh, very excited today to have our guest, Joe Zwierzchowski, right? Yes, sir, that's it. <laughs> I just asked him before the show how to pronounce it, and I briefly forgot, and I had to stumble through it. <laughs> I, I do it all the time. Don't worry about it. <laughs> we're, uh, we're very excited to have you. Joe is the uh, local fire mitigation specialist, uh, wildfire mitigation specialist. And uh, he also goes around the country uh, fighting wildfires, mainly out west, I would say. Yep. And um, yeah, so we're very excited to have him here today. He's going to teach us a bit about his background, the fires he's uh, been involved in, and what he does around here in the panhandle uh, to help us mitigate fire and manage for wildfire. Um, So Joe, uh, I guess let's talk a little bit about where you're from and what your background is. Yeah, um, you know, it's kind of a really long, weird route to get here, but uh, born and raised in Chicago, Illinois, and uh, ended up going to school at Troy State just up the road in Alabama. Mm-hmm. Um, went there for political science and print journalism. Wow. Uh, worked in newspapers for a number of years, but uh, the outdoors was always it. Even growing up in Chicago, we always hunted, we always fished. It was just always something about it that drew me. It didn't matter if it was just a big... You go up, everybody thinks, oh, Chicago, there's no woods, there's no nothing. Mm-hmm. But you go 10 minutes outside of Chicago, and there's these national grasslands. You know, it's just miles and miles of, of prairies and meadows. And we'd, you know, go messing around out there. We were always camping. We were always doing something, maybe going up to northern Wisconsin, uh, the Canadian border, whatever the case mm-hmm. may be. So I've just always been in love with it. And the newspaper thing, you know, the industry itself just wasn't doing real well. Um, parted ways with that. <clears throat> the Florida Forest Service was looking for somebody as a public information officer. So nice. Yeah, they said, "Well, you can type and spell. We'll teach you the rest." Wow. Um, so for it'll be twelve years next month. Uh, it's been a lot of on-the-job training, uh, really, literally trial by fire. So wow. <laughs> yeah, it's been great. That's awesome. You know, it's interesting you say that about uh, being from Chicago, being from a big city. People always think, "Oh, you don't have access to all these natural resources." But the reality is, you know, I think of New Orleans, uh, which is probably the, one of the largest cities close to here. There's so many natural resources around that city. Yeah, you just got to look for them. Yeah, you know, mm-hmm. um, even inside the cities, it was amazing. If you look hard enough, it's all there. Yeah, um, yeah. I honed my hunting skills on backyard squirrels and pigeons. That <laughs> um, fishing off of the shores of Chicago for for salmon and uh, steelhead and, mm-hmm. and smallmouth bass is amazing. Wow, wow, that's amazing. Yeah, awesome. So, yeah, journalism and then into the Forest Service. <laughs> yeah. Um, like I said, and it's, you know, um, one of the greatest jobs I never knew existed. Mm-hmm. Um, everybody kind of always knows that there's somebody somewhere that deals with the wildfires. Mm-hmm. They're just never terribly up to speed on how that actually works. Right. Um, so unless you've got family in it or, you know, you just kind of grow up in one of those towns. Yeah. Um, you know, find it by accident or whatever it may be. Mm-hmm. Here I am. <laughs> That's awesome. So, yeah, I know that I've heard that being a wildland firefighter is a pretty decent job. Like, you can make your income in, like, six to eight months or less, right? <laughs> well, in certain aspects, yes. Um, so, locally speaking, the Florida Forest Service has year-round wildland firefighters. Uh, mm-hmm. For us, they're called forest rangers. Their primary duties are to fight wildfires using a tractor plow, a okay. big bulldozer with a specialized plow on the back. Yeah. Um, that's what works, typically speaking, in the south. We have okay. the softer soils. 
you know, we can turn it to bare mineral soil, reduce all the vegetation to none, and put a line around the fire relatively quickly. Right. Um, out west, it's a different ball game. You know, you get well even in the northern end of the south, you get up into Tennessee and Kentucky, you get in the mountains, tractor plows, not so much. Uh, you got a dig line. Um, you know, so it's a whole different ball game. Not that those tools aren't useful in those areas; they're just more specialized. Okay. And you got to bring different tactics to bear. Um, so, but yeah, I mean, our guys are 12 months out of the year, whereas some of the federal guys are guys and gals are mm-hmm. maybe six or nine months. They're just there for fire season. Right. And so, yeah, you, they can make a, a pretty decent living um, doing that stuff. And, and, you know, it's there, but uh, there's been a lot of chatter recently as far as their health care is only covered for six to nine months mm-hmm. when they're working. So yeah. they're, they're, there's some room for improvement on that side of things, we'll say. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah, I was curious about that. We were talking about that earlier where I had mentioned I knew some people with the Fish and Wildlife Service that would mostly fight fire, fires, but in the off-season for wildfires, they'd come and work at a, um, a wildlife refuge where, mm-hmm. where I had been interning. So, yeah, I guess there's some opportunities for them to stay on full-time with the feds if they get a job like that. Yeah, there is. Some do and some don't. Well, I know a lot of guys and gals that'll go be snowboard instructors all <laughs> winter long. Yeah, you know, yeah, They love it. But like I said, Florida, we do. We have a 12-month wildfire season. Um, mm-hmm. It happens to peak in March, April, May, and in, into June. Um, but our guys are, are fully supported, fully funded, and fully paid uh, right. year-round. Awesome. Yeah, That so that made me wonder, in case we have any listeners that are interested in this type of career, uh, what the qualifications are you have to have a uh, high school or um, do you have to have a college degree or is it uh, generally speaking for wildland firefighter no mm-hmm. um, a lot of it is going to be on the job training right um, that you know high school diploma or equivalency um, they prefer people nowadays to come in with like a CDL mm-hmm. uh, because you are going to be driving a truck that carries your bulldozer right. but it's not required you know you can get one while you're on the job yeah. Um, you know, they'll train you through basic fire control training is essentially our fire academy. Mm-hmm. Um, and it teaches you the rudimentary elements needed to fight a wildfire in Florida. Right. Um, there is a significant number of classes beyond that that teaches you all kinds of other stuff. You know, how to lead people to fight fires, how to fight fires more specifically on a larger scale. Um, but we provide the basic on-the-job training. Mm-hmm. Uh, you go through a little task book, basically a, a contract, if you will, that you know you have to complete these tasks in a certain amount of time. Yeah. And once you are, then you are a certified Florida wildland firefighter. And congratulations, you work for the Florida Forest Service. Nice. Yeah, it's, it is really nice. Um, you know, we've got a great mix of people because of the diversity of the state. Mm-hmm. Um, we have firefighters from Key West to Jacksonville to up here in Pensacola. So, you know, we cover all the counties in the state. Um, Wildfire is a 12-month, year-round situation for us. So you just never know what you're going to be getting into. Yeah, yeah. So say you do that job. You start with the Forest Service uh, or the state um, Florida uh, Forest Service. And then you get all this experience. You get a CDL. You get some heavy equipment uh, operation experience. That's all of a sudden applicable to so many other jobs if you decide Mm -hmm. to stop fighting fire eventually so it sounds like a pretty good intro job <laughs> it is it is and what i a lot of people experience is that um it's uh, one of my coworkers likes to point out that getting in front of and, and operating a tractor plow on the head of a running fire mm-hmm. is not a natural act 
most people can do it with proper training, but it's not necessarily for everybody. Right. You know? So it, it takes a certain kind of person to want to be able to do this. Yeah. Um, and those are the people that we see that are what we call lifers. Mm-hmm. Like they're going to be here. They're going to do their 25 years, their 30 years. Uh, I know several people who came on at 19, 20, 21 years old, and they're still here at 55. Yeah. You know, they're still yeah. here pushing 60. Yeah. In those similar maybe management, they've bumped up a few steps since then. Yeah. But it, it is. It just It's something that once it gets a hold of you, mm-hmm. it's really hard to shake. Yeah. Does it uh, does it turn you into like a pyromaniac type of thing? <laughs> Some, that's a big part. That's a big component of the job, you yeah. know. Um, prescribed fire is is a magical tool for southern forests. Mm-hmm. Um, the south we like to say that the southeast leads the nation in prescribed burning, whether it's number of burns or acres, and then Florida leads the southeast. And we like to say that our three counties, Blackwater over mm-hmm. here on the west side, we lead Florida. Right. So, yeah, that's very much our thing. You know, we nice. burn 50 to 75,000 acres of our 220-ish thousand acre forest a year, not to mention the stuff we do on on private land. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. Yeah, I, I definitely want to ask you about local uh, fire management and fire mitigation, but I'm, I'm dying to ask you about the fires you've worked on in the West. Yeah, and, absolutely. Uh, yeah, if you don't mind talking a little bit about your most recent job that I think you're heading back to soon, actually. Yeah. Uh, so actually, just a couple of days ago, we came off of uh, area southwest Oregon. The fires were called the Devil's Knob Complex, mm-hmm. um, <clears throat> named after one particular geographic feature out there. There's just a knob in the Cas- southern Cascades known as the Devil's Knob. Uh, a fire started there, 20-plus fires in the general vicinity, so that's what makes it a complex. Managing multiple fires as one unit turns right. it into a complex versus just a single singular fire. Yeah. Um, but it was actually really nice. The Florida Forest Service sent what I know to be as their largest incident management team to date. Uh, 60 plus people in all capacities. Uh, everything from firefighters to managers to the incident commander. I was out as the public information officer doing the press releases and videos. Nice. Um, we brought a full logistics staff. You know, everything to manage the food, manage the vehicles for the people, a finance section, because you want to get paid for doing this right, stuff. Right, um, We brought a, what we call the planning section. So mm-hmm. it develops the paper copies of the plan and makes sure everything, I's are crossed and T's are dotted. Mm-hmm. Um, we're producing our own maps. We have our own GIS section. I mean, you name it. We brought everything we could out there just you know, to help the Umpqua National Forest. Yeah. Um, we were pre-positioned for a couple of days in Oregon, around Bend, um, and then they found a fire for us. You know, they yeah. there was a national sh- shortage with the number of fires that are going on. There's so many, only so many management teams out there. Mm-hmm. So they pulled us all the way from Florida, plopped us in the Pacific Northwest, and they knew something was going to happen. They just didn't know exactly where. Wow. Yeah. That's great to hear you talk about, you know, how much work and effort and strategy goes into fighting a fire because down here we, we don't get to see much of that. I don't know if they cover that much in the news out in the West, but here it's like you just see pictures of the firefighters out there and the plane flying over, mm-hmm. dropping water. But and, and, and it just seems like it could be very disorganized, but the reality is it's very strategic 
yeah. Uh, yeah. Attack on the fly. from from an outsider's point of view, look at it, it does seem like just absolute chaos. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, no, it's it is all strategy and tactics. Mm-hmm. Um, those planes are directed to where they're needed most, not just on a particular section of the fire, but mm-hmm. they're prioritized in between fires. You know, be, there's there was at one point when we were out there, there was 51 uncontained large fires in Oregon, Washington, um, and you only got like 10 big air taggers yeah so who gets them who gets them first what are the most values at risk is it structures versus like industrial timber mm-hmm. are we saving lives versus trees um each one of them has you know a priority and <clears throat> and are very very important depending on the community you're working with um i know several timber folks regionally as well as nationally that would rather their house burn down mm. than their hundred acres of 50 year old trees yeah um, yeah you know, one's worth value. a lot yeah i have insurance on my house Mm-hmm. But there's not a lot of insurance for a stand of out there, Doug fir that's mm-hmm. 150 years old. Right. You know, and I mean, tree wise, you're talking to our longleaf pines are beautiful and they're huge and they're amazing. But when you walk up to a sugar pine that's six and a half feet wide, you know, mm-hmm. or a, a Doug fir that takes up the entire trailer of a log truck, mm-hmm. you know, with just oh, yeah. one log, it's it's kind of mind blowing. Yeah, <laughs> that's wild. Yeah, I can't say I've ever seen that down here. <laughs> no, it's a it's a different ball game. We got rid of most of our giant pines <laughs> in Cyprus, so yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, no, and then yeah, just with the national fire landscape, um, yeah, the the stop at home is going to be short lived. Probably heading to California early next week, uh, looking at some more destructive fires. The Dixie Fire mm-hmm. is going on right now, um, still chunking away. It's currently Florida's, or sorry, it's currently California's. Uh, largest wildfire in history. I think it was 910,000 acres. So it broke the threshold recently then. It did. Um, and there's a solid chance it's going to break a million acres. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. It's uh, it's just a tough situation over there. Yeah. So we, we talked about that in the last episode. Um, it was, let's see, it was like 13% contained. First we talked about it. Then it was, uh, they got it to like around 30%. Now, today I read that it's 59% contained. Correct. So. But, I mean, that can change at any moment, right, depending on the weather? It does, yeah. If the fire grows and you don't build any more line, then math tells you you've mm-hmm. lost containment. Typically speaking, though, at this stage of those fires, uh, well, unfortunately, this is not a typical fire. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not a typical fire season. So, yeah, it is possible for that number to go down. But generally speaking, uh, your containment's always going to increase. and It's a measure of confidence that the line you built is going to reasonably hold that fire in place. Mm-hmm. Uh, so as the fire gets bigger, if you see that number remain static, technically they're actually building more line, but the fire is growing at an equal rate. Okay. So mm. if it stays 59% and the fire keeps getting bigger, well, they're adding a couple of miles of line, but the fire keeps adding a couple of thousand acres. So yeah, yeah it's kind of a, it's just a catch 22. Wow. Know? You always want it to be increasing, but with the winds they're having, with just the the geography out there, mm-hmm. um, it's a very difficult situation at best. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So I didn't. I thought you were going back, maybe going back out to the Devil's Knobs. So you're going out to California this time. Correct. Yeah. The Devil's Knobs doing pretty good. They brought another incident management team on it, uh, but the percentages keep going up on that one. They should have it buttoned up reasonably soon. Another two weeks or so mm-hmm. but yeah the dixie fire um it's i'm not going to say there's no end in sight but it's not going to be in the next two or three weeks yeah um and then right next to it is also the calder fire 
which has just been incredibly destructive. That's the one that's burning towards Tahoe. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's got its own set of problems and its own 5,000-person force that's trying to stop it. Yeah, yeah. That's interesting. Um, So last uh, episode, we talked about why there are so many, there seems to be so many large fires out west versus why we don't see that here in the southeast. Um, And we talked about complete fire uh, mitigation um, in the west that led to just a buildup of fuels. And that's why we see a lot of these larger fires. Is that your perspective as well? That's what we we were taught in undergrad. That's another reason why we wanted to bring in an expert who's been there, who's seen it, who's talked to other local people out West. Right. Um, would you agree that that's, that's why we're seeing these current fires? I would say that's definitely one part of it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a multifaceted issue out there. Um, I've, I've read articles that, it, well, I've read articles that, that argue both points. One of which is that the South is so far ahead of other regions because of our prescribed burning program. Mm-hmm. And that's not incorrect, but you have to compare apples to apples. The South's uh, environment is just more conducive. Our plants and animals are not only uh, fire adapted, but a lot of them are fire dependent. They mm-hmm. require natural fire or our version of it, which is prescribed fire, in order to propagate. You know, right. Certain seeds have to hit a thir- certain temperature threshold in order to, to blossom and bloom. Mm-hmm. Um, out there, Prescribed fire is a great tool. It can be used, um, but it's a totally different environment. You've got mountains. You've got just a different set of climatological situations that, Mm -hmm. uh, historically speaking, the West has always burned. Mm -hmm. But 100 plus years ago, we decided that fire was bad. Right. And And the fires needed to be suppressed, sure. But when you've suppressed every natural fire for 100 plus years, mm-hmm. you have an overabundance of vegetation out there. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's got to be a way to figure out how to reduce that vegetation, which we what we call fuel load, mm-hmm. um, because that's all it is. And in our industry, it is fuel for a fire, um, right. whether it's through fire use in prescribed fire, whether it's through mechanical fuel reduction, um, herbicides, whatever the case may be. I mean, some communities have literally hired goat herders hmm. and stuck a hundred goats on the hillside um, yeah. because it gets those low level fuels, which is your primary carrier, um, gets those out of the way. And those are all good, but they have to be used in concert with every other tool you have to bring to the table because the problem is so immense. Mm-hmm. You know, there's so everybody keeps asking, <clears throat> excuse me, everybody keeps asking, well, California has to stop burning because there's nothing left to burn. Right. I don't think people realize how huge California alone is, mm-hmm. not to mention the massive expanse that is the Pacific Northwest, that right. is Idaho, Montana, Nevada, mm-hmm. Arizona. Mm-hmm. Everybody's like, Arizona, how do you have fires in Arizona? It's a desert. <laughs> Arizona is an amazingly diverse landscape. Yeah. Um, you know, It can just be little shrubs and grasses for miles and miles and miles, but mm-hmm. they're going to carry a fire faster mm-hmm. than it will in the big timber of, say, Oregon. Right. Um, not that it can't move quickly at higher altitudes and bigger timber, but those little grass fires are all of a sudden 50,000 acres, and it's only been like two hours right. because they're wind-driven and they sweep across the landscape, and then they get into maybe a, a, a real desert. They hit nothing, or they move up hill and get into the timber, and now mm-hmm. you've got real problems you have to deal with. So multifaceted approach in varied ecosystems is really the solution. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and because the ecosystems are so varied, there is no magic bullet. There's no just secret weapon. It's not just prescribed fire. It's mm -hmm. not just education of residents and landowners. It's not just mechanicals because mechanical costs money. Mm -hmm. Prescribed fire costs money, but it costs significantly less. Uh, 30 to 1, relatively speaking. And right. for every $30 you spend on mechanical, you can get the same results for a dollar on prescribed burning. Right. Um, so it's kind of, you got to see what tool works best for the job. Yeah. And unfortunately, there's varying opinions because there's five or six federal landowning agencies out there. However many states you've got, you got three or four land management agencies for the states. Mm -hmm. We all got to agree on something and it's not this. So, yeah. you know, where do you go? Wow, that, that's that's so interesting because, you know, I've all, also wondered, you know, certainly are we going to reach that cap where all of that residual um, buildup of fuel from those hundred years of, of uh, fire mitigation, um, are we going to burn through it or, or do we have the means to, to manage to get rid of that, that fuel load? Um, I think one day we got to, you know, like uh, you got to find the end of the rainbow sooner or later. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, is it going to be in our lifetime? No, because these things burn in, in such sporadic patterns mm -hmm. that it's really impossible to touch every square inch. Are we ever going to rid the, the West or the planet of wildfires? No, not in our lifetime. Mm -hmm. um, and that's a good thing because fire ultimately brings a rebirth, whether it's in the South under controlled circumstances with prescribed fire um, or out West, their historic fires were what's called stand replacement fires. Mm -hmm. You know, these tree species, these shrubs were built to last three or 400 years. A giant fire sweeps through the landscape, takes them all out, mm -hmm. and it just starts over. And right. it, it is a, you know, 150, 200-year fire regime. Whereas in the southeast, Florida specific, you can operate on a two to five-year fire rotation. Mm -hmm. um, so that, honestly, that, that makes it that much more difficult out there, you know. Yeah. Uh, these these plants and animals aren't that adapted to the wildfire, so you got to be very careful with it. Yeah. One of the things uh, that that I had brought up as for why these wildfires are so hard to manage out west was just the fact that it's wildlands, and we, to me, in the southeast, I don't really think of having many wildlands out here, like a vast expanse of land where there's very little access like mm -hmm. you know i can go people will talk to me oh it seems like you're way out in the woods if you're out you know like like it would be dangerous because you're so far out in the woods and i mean right. in reality I've, I've very rarely been in a place in the southeast where i couldn't walk a few miles and reach an access road sure <laughs> and so when i think of wildfires out west i think about how hard it must be to get to them because they probably don't have as ease of access to nearby roads for fire crews to get to and whatnot would you say that that is is accurate very much so yeah, um, and that's why you look at the existence of specialized units, you mm -hmm. know, the smoke jumpers. They literally jump out of an airplane and attack a wildfire. Mm -hmm. They get there before anybody else can because they just go straight down. Um, wow. <laughs> and then they pack their stuff out. It could be five miles, it could be 15, it could be 20 miles. Mm -hmm. um, you look at your hand crews out there, your, your type one hand crews, the best of the best, everybody knows the hot shots. Mm -hmm. It's no big deal for them to hike five or six miles, start digging line, mm -hmm. get to a safe place with that particular stretch of, of fire, camp right there for the night, wake up in the morning and do it all over again. Yeah. You know, and they'll stay out there for days on end. Yeah. Um, and that's just sort of 
par for the course. But yeah, no, you're right. It is a it's a different atmosphere out there. It's it could be miles upon miles till you get to that next access road. And even then, we're talking about an access road. It's not like Highway 90. It's yeah. Not, yeah, this isn't like <laughs> civilization. No, right. this is a gravel trail that if you follow it along the river, will mm-hmm. get you somewhere eventually. Right, right. Yeah. Wow. That's interesting. Um, we joke on Blackwater River State Forest, uh, among my hunting buddies, that just walk any direction, and you're, you're less than a mile away from a road. You're going to find yeah. something somewhere. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's That pretty much sums up the southeast for me. Um, I Because you brought up hot shots. It makes me think of very dangerous situations. Have, working a fire over the years, have you ever been in a situation where you're with a crew and the weather shifts all of a sudden you're – feeling oh boy this this could get a little sketchy <laughs> yeah 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 uh for better or worse uh the good news is is if my wife and mother are listening as a public information officer not very often yeah um yeah. you know that my oh be safe i'm gonna get a paper cut it's yeah really really the primary job hazard here yeah. um but that being said yes i've been in one or two situations over the years um one in in northern california klamath national forest we were um, kind of in this little town. It's actually an old mining town, mm-hmm. uh, Sawyer's Bar, California. The Klamath is one of the gnarliest mountain ranges you'll ever see. It's almost all vertical. It's got poison oak as far as the eye can see. It's Dang. just huge trees, very, very rugged terrain. And this very isolated community was out there. And our job was to go in every day, deliver the morning updates, you know, staple stuff to a board. We call it a trap line. You go and you post your information. And you hang out, you talk to a few of the town's folks. And in this particular community, we're talking like 14 people. Mm-hmm. Um, and you just tell them what's going on, help them make an informed decision about what's going to happen, what they want to do, if they're going to evacuate, or what the current situation is. Mm-hmm. The wind shifted. Actually, the, the, the fire activity picked up a lot. Uh, it created a giant smoke column, which eventually hit a ceiling and then collapsed. Mm-hmm. So the temperature inside of it became unstable hit a cooling temperature and then dropped all of that warm air and debris and whatever else is in the smoke straight back down on the fire, which then pushes it outwards in all directions. So, yeah. Mm. So as we were trying to go back to camp for the afternoon, uh, call came across on the radio that everybody on division echo needs to evacuate, you know, get out now. And we were on division echo. Mm -hmm. So we start our evacuation plans. And then there's a tree in the road, and it's on fire. And then there's some rocks coming down the hill, so we back up. We can't get out. We stop, kind of try to assess the situation. And it was the fire produces its own atmosphere, produces its own wind and everything. Mm -hmm. You know, heat rises and sucks in cooler air. And it was creating enough wind that it actually took my hard hat with it. Mm -hmm. Um, So it actually pulled my hard hat off. I had to pick that up. We hopped back in the truck. We get a call from the division supervisor, and he wants to know where we are. We're not out. <laughs> um, and he's like, all right, meet me at this point. Yeah. And then he yells at us once we get to that point for about 10 minutes as to why we're not out. What are you doing? Why didn't you listen to the evacuation orders? Right. And then dawns on me that you're in here too. Why are oh. you yelling at me when <laughs> you didn't listen to your own orders? Um, <laughs> spot fires all over the place. Um, we, I was with one of the local firefighters, though, and he had an engine. We had some hand tools. We dug line around some tiny spot fires. It took about 45 minutes to an hour. Everything started to calm down. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, no harm. But, yeah, 
spooky little situation. Yeah, um, yeah. So it was, you know, Jeez. it's entertaining. And then there's similar situations throughout the Southeast and in Florida. But it's, you know, my job, thankfully, is is one of the safer ones in the industry. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Now, I am curious, um, digging line, I've, I've heard the term, not mm-hmm. very familiar with what it means. I imagine many of our listeners may not know what digging line means exactly. So you're digging a fire line to reduce the, basically create a line where the fire cannot spread. So you're reducing the uh, fuel. Correct. And I'm curious, like, how wide, like, sure. what are we talking about? So generally speaking, if you're, we're out west, we're, we're on a mountain somewhere, you got your, your hand crew. And everybody's got a an axe, a shovel, mm-hmm. a Blasky, McLeod's, various tools mm-hmm. um, of different forms, and you are scratching a line in that ground vegetation. Mm-hmm. Uh, first guy, we take a lick and keep moving. You take a lick and keep moving. It's not the first guy's job to build a perfect line. It is the job of, of the 1 through 20 mm-hmm. to build that perfect line. So that 20th strike is what creates the true final line. Mm-hmm. Um, it could be as narrow as 18 inches. You know, if it's a slow-moving ground fire and you can get very close to it and work on the fire's edge, what we call a direct attack, mm-hmm. um, you do it that way. If you've got to go further away for safety reasons, you you have time, yeah. typically speaking, to go a little bit wider. It could be three feet. Okay. Um, but down here in the south, when we're creating a line, it's with that tractor plow unit that we mentioned earlier. You mm-hmm. sink the plow in the dirt, and it's we're talking a couple of tons. So it, you can sink it you can just scratch the surface, go an inch or two deep mm-hmm. and create a, a nice two foot line. You can sink the plow and absolutely just hub it up, bury that thing down mm-hmm. and go forward at two to three miles an hour. And you're throwing dirt like a boat weight. and you'll make a nice four to six foot line. Yeah. that is going to do a very, very good job of stopping that ground fire. Yeah. Um, so it's, you got a lot of different options. You're talking four to six feet of width. There. Correct. And so you said, like three feet is pretty wide for a hand scratch. Very wide, yeah. A scratch okay. line typically just quickly moving on a small nondescript ground fire, 18 yeah. inches is going to be plenty. Because um, you got to think that fire is only burning those grasses and lower level shrubs. Yeah. So you don't have to separate it by much. If you've got a saw crew that's coming in, you got 12 guys that are digging line. And then you've got another eight on your crew that are operating a mix of chainsaws and other tools, mm-hmm. they're able to take the bushes off of the edge, the three foot, four foot bushes. Yeah, yeah. So now the fire is even a little bit more reduced. Now you're dealing with a foot tall fire mm-hmm. and a one foot fire is not necessarily going to lean all the way over a, a two foot wide line. Right. So, and you don't have to worry about sparks jumping over three feet or is that? No, you do. It depends on the condition. So okay. a lot of times you're going to keep your eyes on the green side mm-hmm. You know, the black is, we'll say for, for visual purposes, it's yeah. on your left and you're progressing forward. You're always looking to your right to see if anything is circled back behind you. If the wind has shifted and, and is blowing embers over the side. Yeah. But that's also a tactic where, or a time where you would implement different tactics and go a little bit wider. Yeah. You know, you could go wider, you could go farther away from the fire. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you also have the management of the fire is looking at, that's your primary attack. What's your alternate plan? Mm-hmm. And then you have a contingency plan and an emergency plan as well. So you're not necessarily just building one line Mm -hmm. you and me on the crew may be building one line but there's another plan that's being implemented half a mile up the road on the side of the hill or on the very top of the ridge you've got bulldozers operating a mile and a half away Mm -hmm. in case my hand line doesn't hold we'll catch it over there nice 
that's so much work just thinking about all these big wildfires going on right now and all that effort that's going in it's sure like, yeah a lot a lot of respect for sure i mean devil's knob we had almost a thousand people total mm-hmm. Um, but something like the Dixie or the Calder fire, you're looking at five or 6,000 people. Mm-hmm. So, and while the majority of them aren't directly firefighters, you know, you're still looking at a thousand, 1500 true firefighters out there in engines or hand crews or dozers or man, somebody has got to fly the airplanes, right? you know, yeah. um, which is another form of, of containment. Yeah. Uh, you know, you see the retardant drops, uh, everybody, all the news agencies love that, that shot. Mm-hmm. Um, misconception is that once that pink stuff hits the ground the fire's out and it's done it's yeah, not yeah. going anywhere that's just a temporary fix that just slows it down tamps down the fire behavior you still got to get in there with line whether it's hand line dozers whatever the case may be um and actually put the fire out right right now i imagine because of the uh, environment out there the fuel load and all that you're not you're not able to use fire to fight fire uh I'd imagine. <laughs> well, in some cases you can actually. We were very successful on the Devil's Knob. Okay. Um, in that there was very little opportunity for direct line on that fire because of the terrain. Mm-hmm. So you found a ridge line that was conducive to building line, okay. and that fire was backing so slowly towards it, and the conditions are right that you can light fire along your fire line and let it creep to the main body of the fire. Okay. Um, we call it strategic firing operations. Yeah. Um, there, you, there's other terms for it, burnout operations, mm-hmm. um, back burning, but back burning is more of a defensive technique mm-hmm. where the fire is coming at you very quickly and you, you have pretty much, you got a line, but maybe not all the time. Mm-hmm. So you light it in order to just sort of try to protect yourself and protect the line from being encroached on. Yeah. Strategic firing operations are planned days in advance. Yeah. You know, and it's you give yourself a wide berth. Our particular lines were up to a mile and a half away from the main body of the fire. And we'd light it very slowly, a couple hundred yards at a time. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe a half a mile a day would mm-hmm. be a good production rate. And then you have 20 to 60 guys babysitting a half mile to make sure it's not going the wrong direction. Right. And you let it get some depth. You let it burn in there five, six hundred yards. Clean up the edges. Make sure they're cool. Hit them with water hose out the stumps you move on to the next quarter mile half mile because mm-hmm. <clears throat> now instead of just a 30 foot wide dirt road you've got the 30 foot wide dirt road with 500 yards of black burned out fuel mm-hmm. so when that main body does get here it's got nothing left you've taken all the steam out of it yeah and you've built a greater containment line gotcha um so you were talking about say there's a burnt stump and you have to spray it with water mm-hmm. or retardant um say you're in a massive drought how difficult is it sometimes to get water in an engine or, or whatever to where it needs to go? It can be very tough. Um, yeah, I mean, we're seeing historic drought levels out west, and depending on the proximity of the nearest water source, which could be cattle ponds, it could mm-hmm. be um, rivers, you know, it could be l- the local reservoir. Um, but depending, you know, and a lot of times they'll shuttle water in. They'll have a water tender that goes to the reservoir, fills up, 3,000 gallon tank mm-hmm. brings it up the hill and fills up what we call a porta tank with yeah. 3,000 gallons and then each engine comes and gets their three or 600 gallons from it and shuttles it onto the fire uh, but if that's not an option there's also dry mopping where you get in and you bust up those stumps by hand mm-hmm. spread them out it takes longer obviously yeah. much more labor intensive um, but then you cold trail the fire you just feel with the back of your hand looking for hot spots and you're on a seek and destroy mission if okay. this little log is still warm 
you just beat it to death with an axe and a shovel and whatever you got and, yeah. and break it up till it's till it's not holding heat anymore. Wow. Wow. See, I can you see you were talking about lifers earlier. I can see how people can fall in love with this job. <laughs> it's like uh, it is. There's yeah, uh, there's a romanticism to it that a lot of people see and I think um you know, it's there. It exists. But um you, you got Long term, it's you know, it's it's not lower back friendly. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not really good for your knees. <laughs> yeah. Um. So you know, it's it's. I've never really served on a hand crew. I can't necessarily speak to it, but I know plenty of guys that do that absolutely love it. And they'll mm-hmm. run it into their fifties. Uh. But when they get done, they walk funny. Yeah. You yeah, know. Yeah. Um. You can definitely tell those guys that have been doing it for their entire life. Yeah. And they wouldn't have it any other way. Yeah. It, to them, it's worth the sacrifice battle scars and stories at the local watering hole <laughs> absolutely yeah yeah that's the one thing you'll never really be short on is is the battle stories yeah yeah that's awesome um earlier we briefly discussed um i guess philosophies which often become political unfortunately unfortunately over the causes of wildfires especially current ones and why we're seeing so many it seems um why they're so big in the news and um, so we, we talked about how one philosophy is that it's all because of fire mitigation um, for, for a long period of time that led to um, uh, a large fuel, fuel load uh, buildup. And then the other aspect is, of course, climate change. How, how much is that affecting how frequent and how large of fires we're seeing? And uh, unfortunately, those become two political uh, ideas as though we have to choose one or the other as to what's the cause of all these these natural right. disasters. And it was even involved in some of our political debates, d- debates in the last presidential election, <laughs> which Correct. was very poorly debated in, the, in those. But anyway, I wanted to get your opinion um, on what you think are the, the main contributing factors as to why we're seeing so many wildfires. Right. Well, it's and so mitigation and suppression are, are two different things. And we've been suppressing the wildfires for a hundred plus years, mm-hmm. you know, put every wildfire out, keep it as small as humanly possible on the surface. That makes perfect sense. Mm-hmm. Why would you want to let a wildfire run unchecked? You right. know, in the early 1900s, we saw 3 million plus acres run through Idaho and Montana, uh, the big burn you mm-hmm. know, 1910. Um, and it was destructive. It was, it was destroying things that we loved and we held dear. You look at the natural landscape and why would you want it to burn up? We didn't know any better. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and so, but we maintain that philosophy for a hundred plus years. Um, we're still putting wildfires out, especially when they present any danger to developments, to economy, to, you know, any, any real threat to anything at value. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's been a change to some more management of the fire where a bigger box is allowed. You can let that fire get a little bit bigger because of firefighter safety has become more prominent. Um, you know, you don't want to put anybody in harm's way, uh, on purpose, Mm -hmm. you know, it's still an inherently dangerous job, but we've realized that the natural landscape was on fire before we got here. Mm -hmm. Um, and so through our well-intentioned suppression of every single wildfire ever, Mm -hmm. um, we've had that overabundance of fuels. As you mentioned, the vegetation has grown up to unhealthy, unnatural levels, Mm -hmm. um, Add into that the fact that, you know, the cause of climate change is, is 
not what we're talking about. But mm-hmm. the fact that it is warmer, you know, the climate is different now than it was 200 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really hard to argue anything other than that. Right. Um, so, but now you're seeing maybe more growth in certain areas that wasn't present 200 years ago. So thicker fuels are growing back faster. So there's another factor that goes into the why wildfires are getting to where they're at. Mm-hmm. Um, then you just look at the fact that we're building houses in places we've never built houses before. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's putting more structures at risk, which is putting more people at risk, mm-hmm. which means firefighters have to put themselves more at risk because, you know, as as professionals, that's what we're going to do. That's why you get into it. Yes, everybody likes sleeping outdoors and eating mm-hmm. bad food at a camp, but it is the protection of life and property. You know, that's still the ultimate calling. Mm-hmm. Any firefighter ever, that's whether it's a structure department or wildland, that's what you're there for. Um, so as now more of these quote-unquote mega fires are occurring in more populated areas because we've moved the populated areas to the woods. Right. Um, yeah, it's just this giant circle. And, <laughs> and there's no one cause. In my opinion, you have to take all of the facets, look at them objectively, mm-hmm. and... I don't have enough fingers to point at all the problems. Mm-hmm. You know, there's no magic bullet. There's no simple solution. Um, it's going to take a whole lot of people who are currently in a massive disagreement mm-hmm. to come together and pinpoint multiple solutions right. um, to solving this problem. Right. So, and it's, I'm, I'm hopeful that it'll happen sooner rather than later, but you know, until then this is the world we've got and, and, these are, this is the hand we're dealt. We're just going to have to play it. Yeah, yeah. It's it's going to take some some educated uh, public officials <laughs> to be in the right place at the right time and influence the, the people in power uh, that can affect forest management in the West. It is. Well, and that's, you know, one of the nice things, one of the great things about here in Florida is that um, our agency specifically, the people who who are in charge of our agency and, and have direct contact with those who are the influencers and the policymakers, mm-hmm. they came up through the ranks. Yeah. You know, they're not, our folks aren't elected officials with the Florida forest service. They started here 20 or 30 years ago mm-hmm. or even 10 or 15 years ago, but they started on the ground somewhere, maybe a County forester, maybe as a firefighter, you know, maybe as a, as a mechanic mm-hmm. and they've worked their way up through the ranks and we do a great job of promoting from within which gives them that innate knowledge to just present a very clear picture. And our legislators do a great job at listening. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in, in the South in general, but Florida specifically, is very amenable to prescribed fire. Um, if you look at whether it's Central Florida and the cattle ranges, uh, South Florida um, and the Everglades, they mm-hmm. need burning all the time. Sugar fields need burning. Or up here in the North, um, the natural fire regime that we're trying to mimic and longleaf uh, wiregrass, you know, it's just second nature to go out on a clear January day and you're going to see 15 <laughs> smoke columns around here. Yeah. Nobody really bats an eyelash about it. You mm-hmm. do that out west and people are probably going to freak out. Right, right. Wow. Um, yeah, so that brings me, I wanted to, since you are the local fire mitigation specialist, uh, I kind of wanted to talk about what, landowners can do here um to avoid wildfires because i know before i moved here there was a fire just before i moved last august um i forget where that was it was right over 
well, just east of here, uh, north of Interstate 10, due south of, of the landfill. The, I think you're referring to the Five Mile Swamp yes, Fire. Yes, that's it. Yep. Um, yeah, so that was, uh, <clears throat> that was a wildfire that started north of the interstate. It was a couple of hundred acres for two days. The winds shifted, uh, came out of the north at 30-plus miles an hour. It jumped the entire interstate. Hmm. Uh, wow. Lost several houses south of the interstate. Um, we were very fortunate, no loss of life, no significant injuries. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that's a known area for us that we've been trying to work on for years. Garson point in general, mm-hmm. um, is an area that the folks that I work with on the mitigation crew, we've targeted that area here and there, but wildfire is such a, a dynamic animal that you never know exactly where it's going to hit. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can actually see several of the properties. If you find the old maps where it burned less severe in places that we had done mitigation Mm -hmm. um you can follow the line the western line of that fire was easy to track because it bumped up to northwest florida water management property which is burned on a two to five year rotation Mm -hmm. so we were able to contain it very easily on that side where it where it was not so easy to contain is you know the pine stands and grasslands that haven't seen fire in 20 30 years yeah um but locally, I mean, one of the biggest things is is that education that we do have a 12-month wildfire season. Mm-hmm. Just be, We've seen a tremendous amount of rain, and we're just into you know early September. Mm-hmm. Um, but we've had a very wet summer. October, late September, the rain's going to shut off. It mm-hmm. does it every year. And by Halloween, when people are raking leaves or pine straw and it's nice out and they want to have that little backyard burn, mm-hmm. it's dry again. Right. So you've got to be very, very careful with your wildfires or with your with your burn piles, rather, in order to avoid a wildfire. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just education about that, when and how to burn safely, when and how to burn properly. And a lot of that stuff is available on our website. Um, okay. We work underneath the Florida Department of Agriculture and Consumer Services. Mm-hmm. So FDACS.gov. Um, or just do a Google search for Florida burn laws. Mm-hmm. Um, and all of that stuff's online readily available but the short answer to it really (laughs) is that uh, if your burn pile is less than eight feet in diameter and you can keep it 25 feet away from the wood line or another combustible structure if you can keep it 25 feet away from your house 50 feet away from a paved road and 150 feet away from your neighbor's house Mm -hmm. then you're legal to burn Um, just because you're legal to burn doesn't mean it's a great idea Right. You know, watch the wind. If it's significantly windy, 15, 20 miles an hour, let's wait for a better day. Mm-hmm. Um, if the smoke's going to blow directly into your neighbor's house and it's a really nice day and they got the windows open, mm-hmm. let's be friendly. Let's be neighborly and not do that. Right. Um, if everything's perfect, it's not too windy, your neighbor doesn't mind smoke going wherever in their house, um, keep a charged water hose handy, clear to mineral soil around your burn pit. Mm-hmm. Ideally, get a metal barrel burn inside that barrel you know it it may take a little bit longer but keep feeding sticks and limbs small stuff into there Mm -hmm. um you know and if you ever have any doubt you can check it out on the website you can call my office Mm 850-983-5310 you can find us on facebook florida forest service blackwater forestry center um there's a lot of options you know and and i'm always available we're always available glad to answer questions definitely it's part of the job yeah Joe, man, I appreciate it. This is uh, it's probably a good time for us to wrap it up, but this conversation has been really fun, uh, entertaining, and and insightful for sure. Um, I definitely, we had mentioned maybe we could do another podcast
podcast another time that focuses not on wildfire, but fire management, you know, prescribed fire. Uh, there might be some listeners out there that are new landowners that, you know, might have inherited some property of, of pine or some type of land that needs fire management and they don't know much about it. This might be a great opportunity for them to hear y'all talk about it and what's your best best route depending on what their land ownership goals are. Yeah, absolutely. We'd love to talk to you guys about it. If not me, we've got a lot of assistance and a lot of experts available, county foresters and in every county in Florida um, and some some of the really best not just in the state, but in the nation, prescribed burn practitioners in this area. So yeah, I think it would be a tremendously helpful conversation. I would look forward to it. Awesome. Yeah. Y'all, this has been uh, Joe's Zerchowski. Ah, I see. I want to do this weird, but it's Zerchowski. See, that's a lot easier. It is. Yeah. Sorry, I butchered that, but I got it now. But yeah, we've had Joe Zerchowski with us. And uh, a lot of respect to you for what you do for a living and the guys and gals that you mentioned that, that are wildland firefighters. And uh, we'll keep an eye on the news and uh, we'll have some updates in the future. And thank you very much to our listeners. This has been Between Every Two Pines. Y'all have a good one.